So tonight we kick off again with covenants, and uh, as we as we continue tonight, we deal with the Mosaic covenant or the Israeli covenant, um, the covenant God made 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 with the special people that He sort of promised through Abraham. Um, so just to get some background again. Um, you know, the first covenant we dealt with was the Noahic covenant. That covenant was for survival. The second and second covenant we dealt with was the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, that covenant dealt with selection. God chose a people. And uh, this third covenant we'll be dealing with is the covenant that deals with security. How God intends to work with his people. And uh, we'll be looking at the details of the Mosaic covenant. Um, and that will really talk to what, we, what we're speaking about right now. So when we, we see how God sort of made a selection of people through Abraham, God asked Abraham to separate himself from his past, from his father's house, from his family, and to move to a place God would show him. Abraham, in faith, in, in obedience, uh, went with God's instruction. He became a friend of God. He had an incredible relationship with God. And uh, the beautiful thing is, because he only had... Um, he had a son called Isaac, who would be the son of promise. And through the son, God would now allow this, this promise and allow this, uh, uh, the covenant to be extended, to be continued and to be fulfilled. So Abraham uh, uh, has a son called Isaac. Isaac has a son called Jacob. Uh, he was a twin, um, but he was the, 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 the son that would continue the promise. Jacob um, has this incredible encounter with God where he, you know, God changes his name. Uh, he has an encounter with God where God says, listen, you know, will no longer be deceiver. You will no longer be supplanter, which really means schemer. You will now become prince, uh, prince with God, which is Israel. And, and God changes his name. And this is, then becomes the name of these people that God promised. So the people that God promised to Abraham, you know, they could have been called anything, but God changed Jacob's name. And because of that, they are called uh, uh, these princes with God. So it's pretty prophetic. And God's obviously doing some things through that. And uh, he's, he's now sort of separating the special people to himself. God gave the promise that he gave to Abraham, to Isaac. Um, he said to Isaac, to you and to your descendants, I'll give you all these lands and I'll fulfill the oath which I swore to your father. Then in Genesis 28, he again confirms that same promise and gives it to Jacob. He says, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. And they will be like the dust of the earth. So this promise sort of continues through the line until we begin to see the fruition of the promise in the, in the amount of people that God obviously promised Abraham, in the amount of people that God said, you know, I'm going to make your, your descendants, you know, innumerable. He uses the stars, the sand, the dust to sort of say just how many they would be. Um, so, so now if we just begin to see uh, from a historical context perspective, if you read Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, Stephen the martyr actually gives an incredible historical account of what it looked like up until the time of Abraham and Moses and so on. So if you read that, you know, um, the Bible says that when you are brought before the courts of men, uh, do not prepare before and what you will say, but I will give you uh, uh, through the Holy Spirit, I'll give you the words to speak. So the utterances and, and what happens with Stephen is that very word gets fulfilled just before his death. They were about to stone him, but they gave him, you know, they 
put him, uh, put him before the courts and he had the opportunity to give his final words. And he gives this discourse um, as he goes through the, 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 his, the history of Israel, as he goes through, you know, all the, the, the details. And he sort of highlights key things that he wants to conclude and draw to his point. And uh, the beautiful thing of that is that, um, you know, it gives us a great historical uh, context and overview. Uh, you can read that in Acts chapter 7. But God sort of separates the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He gives them a promise to each of them. Um, we see that Jacob's name gets changed. And he has these 12 sons that eventually becomes the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, the youngest son in that, in that uh, uh, party is a guy called Joseph. He gets sold into slavery. He's sort of the favorite son. He's the son that his father loves, dearly loves. And uh, because of this, the jealousy that gets brought into the hearts of, of, of his brothers, um, what happens is now, you know, this son just really gets uh, 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 separated from the family. He gets sold into slavery, ends up in a place called Egypt, really gets promoted and, and, and favored incredibly. You know, it wasn't just favor from his father, but everywhere he went, this favor really was surrounding him like a shield. Um, and, and he sort of gets promoted to the point where he becomes sort of second in command in Egypt. What then happens is there's a famine in Canaan and in Egypt. In Canaan is where uh, a Jacob or Israel and his sons are dwelling. And then in Egypt is now where the separated son Joseph is living. What then happens is they find out that there's food in Egypt because God gave Joseph this incredible wisdom to be able to strategize um, through one of Pharaoh's dreams, to be able to strategize, to, to, to be able to... Uh, 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 plan for the famine that was now predicted through this dream. So as they do that, Jacob hears that there's food. He sends his sons to go and check this out. Obviously, Joseph now realizes that, oh, you know what God has prepared him for in all this time. And uh, he can reconnect with the family. Um, you know, they, they then, you know, Jacob then leaves Canaan to go to Egypt. They relocate. At that point in time, there were 75 people in the clan, in the family, you know, in, this, in, in, in the family of Jacob. 75 people relocate to Egypt and they get separated in, and put into a land called Goshen, which is a, a sort of a sip just on the side of Egypt. You know, when, when God gave Abraham a promise, he said to him some, something in Genesis, in Genesis 15, 13 to 14. He said to him, he said, uh, uh, he said to Abraham, no, certainly, certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also that, that, the, that nation whom they serve, I will judge. And afterwards they will come out with his great possessions. So God already knew what the plan was. God wanted to take them through a time of refining. He wanted to take them through, through a time of, um, of just shaping them. You know, sometimes God gives you a promise and you wonder like, you know, why did I have to take these detours? Joseph has a dream. He ends up in the pit. He then eventually gets to the palace. He eventually gets reunited with his loved ones. It doesn't always go when God gives you a word. It doesn't always go immediately the way you expect. David gets anointed as king. He doesn't become king immediately. He has to even go and serve the current king that he would then take the place of. You know, sometimes God gives you a promise. He gives you a prophetic word and things tend to go in the opposite direction in comparison to the word that he gave you. So what I like about what God gives to Abraham, he tells him, listen, this is coming ahead of you. And I wonder how well this must have been communicated. I hope it was communicated well, um, because these people would have then gone through this 400 years of slavery, which is a long time. Um, if a generation, the Bible, when it talks about generations, it talks about 40 year, a 40-year period. 
Now you're talking about, you know, this is a, a lot of generations that have to go through this time of slavery. What I want you to remember is that God's ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. When he took them through that, through that time, it was for a reason, for a purpose. You know, God was promising them this incredible land, and it's as if he wanted them to be prepared when they got there. You know, when I think about King Saul, how he was put into to, um, position when God didn't intend yet to give Israel a king. Because he was their king. And what happens is Saul gets put into that position. His head and shoulders above everyone else. He's the most handsome man in Israel. But he still messes up. So without the preparation period, we, when we get a hold of the promise, we tend to falter. So what I see is that God will rather take you through 400 years of slavery to teach you something than give you something prematurely where you bypass the process, but you are not prepared and ready to be able to handle the promise that he wants to give to you. So, so these kind of things, I mean, this doesn't, in our minds, we would never have done this. I, I would never have put my children through 400 years of slavery to get them to the point of, of release and then, you know. I would have maybe thought of it differently, but God has his way. And, you know, we may, we may only find out when we get to heaven why God did it in the way that he did. You may have questions about your life. Lord, why did he take me down this path? Lord, why? You gave me this promise, but I ended up going like that. What was that about? I felt like I was in obedience, but it didn't make sense. And I believe God will be able to make sense of those kind of things that we often don't understand. Because in all honesty, 400 years in slavery, I didn't really get it. But I see that God is shaping. And, you know, um, there's an interesting verse um, that says, if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. That's in Romans 8, 17. And, and I sort of feel like maybe God wanted to take them through some things before he gave them these incredible blessings. Um, I don't really understand exactly what, why God does those, those things and in the way that he does it. But what I do know is that God is faithful. And in the end, he took them through 400 years and he carried them beautifully. And he then separated them and uh, gave them their land eventually. Um, What's interesting is it took them a thousand years to really, uh, 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 really possess the full breadth of the land that God promised them, but it took them 500 years to lose it. So what took them so long to gain, they lost completely within a period of 500 years. So it's, a, it's not a, it's not a, a great story. Um, and, and that's why we needed a Messiah. That's why Israel was always looking to this time where the Christ would come, where this hero would come, where the Savior would come. And eventually he does come. But as we see over here, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, you know, God gives them incredible promises. God is trying to fulfill that promise. Um, you know, Jacob has these sons. They then span out. But before they even become much, they, they're sort of 75 people stuck in, a, in, a, in the place of promise called Canaan, but now had to relocate to this place called Egypt. And uh, while they're there, God is really multiplying them. He's increasing them. So what, what was sort of planned for evil, God then turns around for good. You know, God really uh, uh, takes, takes a, you know, this time of slavery and all of that. They come into Egypt as 75 people. They leave Egypt. Um, you know, we don't know the exact number, but between 2 million and 3 million. You do the math on that. <laughs> There's a lot of, you know, it, it's, it's incredible. So from the time they leave Canaan to go to Egypt as 75 people in that time, in that 400 years, God really multiplies them. And as they leave Egypt, God promises them they're going to leave with the spoils, with great spoils. So they obviously took the gold and the, 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 the cattle and they took everything along with them as they leave Egypt. So, so God is true to his promise. 
And uh, we see how, you know, how they get separated, how they now leave with, with way more people as, 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 to, as opposed to what they came. And they also leave with this treasure and God is sort of setting them up to leave towards um, the promised land, to leave towards what, is he, what he wants to do with them. As they leave Egypt, <clears throat> they go through the Red Sea. They travel for about three months and God says, hey, I want to make a covenant with you. Now, the time between the Abrahamic covenant and uh, or at least after Abraham and, and where God makes this, uh, the Mosaic covenant with him is a span of 430 years. They spent 400 of those years they spent in uh, in slavery. And uh, you, you see 430 years pass and now they find themselves at a place where God's saying, I want to make a covenant with these people. So God positions them at this mountain. Now, if you read Exodus uh, 19, you'll see that it's, it's, it's quite a, it's a big event. It's, there's a lot happening. God is, is really wanting to, to show who he is. And uh, he's sort of wanting to, he really wants to, to partner with the people. And, and, and what he does is, he, he, the Bible says in the third month, um, after they left Egypt, um, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out for, from Rephidim, it says um, they entered the desert of Sinai. They camped there in front of the mountain. So they're in front of Mount Sinai and God gives like all these specific instructions. I don't want anyone to break through. I don't want anyone to touch the mountain. If they touch the mountain, they die. If an animal comes too close to the mountain and they touch the mountain, they will die. So basically God's saying the only person I want to come close is Moses. And God's saying then because, uh, uh, you know, there was a little bit of friction and whatever, but God says Aaron can come too. Um, <clears throat> God begins to give them the conditions for the covenant. He begins to tell them what this covenant will entail. He begins to tell them little details. He says, um, <clears throat> Moses then gets separated to go up to God. And uh, God says to him, you, see, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, notice that whenever you see the word if, that is a condition. God says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, uh, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Uh, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We see these promises. God saying, hey, I want to separate you. I want you to be my people. I want you to be my special people. I want you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And uh, God sort of telling Moses and he says, tell this to the children of Israel. So Moses then went back. He goes and he summons the elders. He begins to talk to them and tell them what God's intention is and uh, uh, what, what he wants to do. Now, remember with a covenant, different to a contract, in a covenant, God doesn't say, I want to do this. I want to make you my special people. Israel, what's your opinion? Israel, what do you want to say? Israel, what do you think? Look at it. He says in verse 8, the people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. In a, in a covenant, there's a stronger party and a weaker party. The stronger party sets the terms. The stronger party sets the conditions. And God sets the terms and he sets the conditions. Then the weaker party has to either say, I will agree to the covenant or I disagree. What these people do as the elders and as the people of Israel, they say, we will do everything the Lord has said. So then, then it says so beautifully. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. How awesome is that? God wants to, he extends the covenant. 
He gives uh, the people a chance to respond. In other words, they could have said, we don't want to be that nation for you. You know, we don't want to be your special people. We don't want to be a kingdom of priests. But they then say, okay, you know what? We want this. We want a covenant with you and we want to partner with you. And we want and we accept the terms that you have said before us. So now Moses is excited. God's excited. The people are excited. Everyone's in agreement. And Moses goes back to God and says to him what the people have said. Now, God then says what he's going to do. Now, this, what happens next is very strange to me personally, but this is what happened. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. So God was going to manifest himself in a certain way through a cloud. Then he says, so that the people will hear me speaking with you. God wanted the people to hear for themselves what he was saying. He didn't want them to think later on, did Moses make this up? Did Moses create this, this as a figment of his imagination and we just went with it? They saw the cloud. They saw the pillar of fire as they were coming through the wilderness. Yes. But did they hear God for themselves? So God wanted them to hear his voice. He wanted to make this personal with them. And it says, you know, I want to speak with you and, we'll, you know, so that they will hear me and that they will always put their trust in you. How beautiful is that? God is sort of reassuring Moses as their leader. God is saying, I'm happy. I'm happy that the people want to make a covenant with me, but I need them to hear my voice. Verse 10 says, and the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them. So they had to wash their clothes. They had to go through this process of consecration, like purifying themselves. So they go and wash their garments. They go and purify themselves and they had to be ready by the third day. Now what happens is, um, he says to, to Moses, now put the limits on the people. Please make sure no one runs through. They will have to be put to death if they touch the mountain. All of these things, whether it's man or animal. Moses goes down, he consecrates the people, um, and, and there's this incredible time that, that uh, uh, they have with God. So everyone in the camp trembled. The people start to become afraid. You know, God begins to come with flashes of lightning and thunder. When God speaks, it's loud, and the people become afraid. You know what happens? The people become afraid, and they tell Moses, listen, we don't mind if you speak to us. You see, God wanted to make the relationship personal. He wanted to, to make sure they heard his voice. But the people said, we don't want to hear God. We want to hear Moses. We want to hear from a prophet. So what they did was, God's intention was for them to be a, a priesthood. Uh, 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 and what he wanted was intimacy with everyone, not just intimacy with Moses. But the people sort of say, hey, we don't really, we, we are a bit afraid of, of what we're experiencing with God. You know that God intentionally made them afraid. There's two kinds of fear. Let me, let me, let me explain this before I, I just say it like that. There's two kinds of fear. There's good fear and bad fear. There's the kind of fear that says that you say, listen, don't run into traffic. That's a good fear. Keep that fear alive in you. Don't run into traffic. If there's fast cars approaching, stay away. That's a good fear to have. You know, your legs can, can sustain injury, but I think that one is going to be a little bit too much for you. So that's a good fear. Then there's what we call, uh, pardon me, that's a, a good fear. And it's, it's where you sort of fear something, you know, where something bad is going to happen to you. A bad fear, negative fear is when you have a phobia. You're afraid of heights. You're just standing on the roof of your house, but you're so afraid. That is a negative fear. It's inhibiting you. It's stopping you from experiencing things. If you have a, f a fear of flying, you can't go to another country. So it's a, a limiting fear, a, a restrictive fear. The kind of fear that God wanted to put on the people was the fear of God. And the Bible says, I don't know where it is. He said, 
I want, I, I want them to fear me so that they will not sin. The fear of God produces a, a, a it's you, when you really see God for who God is, he is God almighty and you will not sin. You will not do what you're doing. You will not, you will not, you will not touch what you shouldn't touch. You will not eat what you shouldn't eat. You will not go where you shouldn't go. Why? Because when you have the fear of God, it will keep you from sin because, you know, and that's what's missing today. The fear of God is missing today. And, uh, the people misunderstood this, misread this. And what did they do? They said, we're afraid. We want to hear from Moses. We don't want to hear from God. So they changed the dynamic of the relationship. God wanted the dynamic of the relationship to be one where he speaks to all. Now the relationship is one where God can only speak to Moses. So what God does is he has this in this time with the initially with the elders. He calls them forth and they actually see God. The elders, I think there were 70 elders. They come up into the, into the special place and God says, hey, come closer. And these 70 elders get separated. The Bible says they see God. They see God's footstool. He puts his foot on the pavement. They see all of that. They see God in his splendor. And what happens is God then says to, the, to Moses to come up higher. And this is where God gives him the Ten Commandments. As God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, you must understand why did God give Moses a physical tablet of stone as the Ten Commandments? When God made the covenant with them, there was this verbal agreement where he gave the conditions and he gave the, 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 the details of the covenant to Moses verbally. The people verbally replied with a yes. And it was as if this, this, the stones, the tablets of stones of the commandments were, it was like the the... You know, it's like the agreement on paper. It's like, it's like when you say, hey, this is what we agreed to and here it is on paper. So God was really saying this is a done deal and here it is on paper. By the time Moses comes down from the mountain, guess what happened? The covenant is not even sealed properly. As he comes down, they've already made a golden calf. They've already turned from the Lord. This is in the 70 elders just saw the Lord. So to me, this is mind-blowing how these people who saw the Lord, they didn't even stop everyone. Somebody had to say something. Even Aaron was part of this. I mean, really? And to me, it's just disappointing how by the time Moses is still coming with the, he's still coming with the stones, of, you know, the tablet stones. And the Bible says Moses took the stones and he threw them on the ground. It was as if it was a prophetic sign to say, you have broken the covenant already. And here he takes the tablets of stone and he smashes them on the ground. And it's as if to say the agreement has been broken. You've broken it. Because the first thing that God says is, you, you shall not have any other gods before me. And as Moses is not even coming down after so, you know, he was just away for 40 days where God had him. He's coming down. He's had an incredible time with God. He comes down and the people have already broken one of the Ten Commandments. So, you know, God, just to show you that even as, as God is giving them laws and commandments, the, the total laws and commands are about 613. I want you to see God's grace He's, he's slow to anger. Um, you know, God actually was going to wipe everybody out. But the Bible says Moses prayed for the people. And as Moses begins to intercede for them, God relents. And God says, okay, he's not going to destroy them. He then tells Moses, you go and get tablets and I will use my finger to write out the Ten Commandments again. So those tablets, Moses then makes the second batch. And God puts the, 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 the laws, he puts the Ten Commandments on, on the tablets with his finger. So God then says, okay. He sort of forgives them. He has grace upon them. 
And I want you to recognize that even though this is a covenant that we generally look at as the covenant where the law gets instituted, I want you to realize that God was also very gracious even in giving this covenant to the people because he could have ended everything as they broke it right there at the beginning. But God then says, okay, he's, he's, he's still going to keep on. He's still going to love. This, is, this will still be his people. He will still make them special. He will still do this with them. To me, that is just God's character on display because he's slow to anger. You know, he really listens to his people. So Moses intercedes. God changes his heart and uh, he, he doesn't destroy the people. So I really wanted you to see some of that because it's so important to understand that <clears throat> so much happened. Um, the conditions for the covenant, God's saying to the people, hey, if you live this way, I will bless the land. It will be fertile. I will bless your bodies. There will be no disease among you. There will be no poverty among you. It's a wonderful covenant. But the downside is if you don't live God's way, then the curse will come upon you. So we see all of that really get ratified if you read Deuteronomy 28. God says, if you, if, if you don't live my way, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to send pestilence, drought, disease on your crops. I'm going to uh, cause locusts to come and eat them up. I'm going to send earthquakes. And, uh, you know, this is sort of the conditions of, of the covenant. So you must understand that each covenant is for a particular people, for a particular person, or, or for, pardon me, for a particular people, for a particular purpose, for a particular period. And we need to ask all these questions about the covenants, right? So when we think about the party, who did God make this covenant with? He made it with Moses and Israel. He really wanted to make this with all the people. We call it the Mosaic covenant because Moses is the key person that's involved. But God really, as you can see from what we could see in Exodus 19, God is making this not only with Moses, with these people. These are the descendants that came through Abraham and God knows he wants to do something special with them. Um, so obviously the people agreed and then there were promises. Now we must understand that these promises, we look at covenants when they are national or international, how they affect a certain people or do they affect everyone. And uh, this covenant is national. God promises them occupation of the land and he promises them provision and protection in that land. Right? So God's saying this promise is for this, for these people of Israel and I'm promising them to, that they will be able to occupy the land if they obey me. And I will provide for them and I will protect them. You will even protect them from diseases, not only enemies. I want to show you the five divine promises that came through uh, with this covenant. The first one, that, first one that I want to highlight to you is that God is telling Israel, you will be my prized possession. God's telling Israel, you will be my prized possession. What does that mean? That means... Where God says to them in Exodus 19 verse 5, Hey, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession among all the people. God says, the earth is mine, but I want you to be special on the earth. So you know what God's saying? He's saying that he will be Israel's God and they will be his possession, but in a special way. They will have special blessings. They will have blessings beyond all the other nation, nations. They will be God's prized possession if they keep his covenant. So that's the first promise he gives them. The second promise he gives them is that there will be a kingdom of royal priests. When you see in Exodus 19 verse 6, he says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What this, this is, this is probably one of the best promises that, that I can see with this covenant. And it means that the, the privilege that the children of Israel have, not just Moses, not just Aaron, not just Joshua, all of them would have the special privilege of being priests unto God. What that means is, and a priest, because a priest always had intimate access to God, 
So that means that these people would all have intimate access to God, not only Moses. And you see how, how debilitating it is when the people say, we don't want to hear from God, we want to hear from Moses. You know, today, even though people have the Holy Spirit, they still operate like that. I, I don't want you to, to, you know, there is, place, there is still a place in New Testament ministry, in the fivefold ministry, there's still a place for the prophet. But people today also have that same mindset like those children, children in, in Israel. They have that same mindset that I would rather hear from a prophet than hear from the Lord. I want you to know that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. He will speak to you. He will guide you. He will lead you. You will hear the still small voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. And I want you to know that God wants to have a personal relationship with you. Don't settle for second best when you can have the best. So there is a place for, for the prophetic. There's a place for the body. So there will always be other people that can confirm what God wants to tell you. Um, there's, a, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. I'm not saying be an island on your own. You can hear God stay separate. No, God has you in the body for a reason. But what I don't want you to do is relegate your, your, your rights and privileges to access what God wants to speak to you about, to access the relationship. Now, this obviously gets better and better and stronger and stronger as you grow in your relationship with God. It doesn't just happen overnight. You don't just get born again and all of a sudden you hear with clarity. You grow in that process and God loves that process. God is not just trying to get you from point A to point B. He loves the process of you getting to point B. So as you develop, as you grow, God loves that process. So bear in mind that, you know, it's not just about um, um, getting to the next step. It's also about the way you develop and grow to get there. So God wanted uh, these people to be royal priests, a kingdom of priests. He is, God is, 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 he wants to be intimate with each and every one of them. But the, there's already some hiccups there. But for us, I want to encourage you. You know what? You've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You have access to God. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ. There's certain things that we have rights and privileges for that I don't think we necessarily use or access. The third promise, Israel will, will be a holy nation. They will be a holy nation. The awesome thing is that God is a holy God. So guess what God's looking for? A holy people. So they need to represent God well. The reason why he's separating a special people is because he needs a, a witness in the earth. Um, you know, so Israel will be a holy in two senses. Number one, she would be set apart and distinguished from all the other peoples. And number two, she would be granted moral likeness to God. So God says, be holy for I am holy. So because God's holy, Israel becomes this witness of what it looks like to follow God and to, to walk like God, to be the people of God. So, you know, Israel really had the all satisfying privilege of likeness to God. So the Bible says that Adam was made in God's image. So what this nation would be is like the image of God on the earth. So God wasn't, you, you see, God's not only looking to disciple people or a person, he's looking to disciple nations. Did you remember that command that when Jesus released us and he, and, he, and he gave us his instruction, he said, make disciples of all people, make disciples of nations. God wants to make disciples of nations. So the most beautiful thing about Israel needed to be that they would be this holy nation that other nations could look to and say, we want to be like them. The fourth promise, God will defend Israel from all her enemies. So this is incredible that God is going to keep these special people in this special place and if they keep his covenant and they obey his commands and he listen to his voice, 
This is in Exodus 23 verse 22. God says, I will be an enemy to your enemies. That is an incredible promise for any nation to have. Remember, the, the UN wasn't in place yet. There was no United Nations. People fought ugly and they fought to win. They did it in ways that, that, that you cannot believe. And if they got a hold of you, they got a hold of you. So God's saying, if you keep my covenant, I will protect you from any enemy and any adversary. You know, <clears throat> anybody that opposes Israel will have to deal with Almighty God. That's as long as Israel would keep this covenant. We obviously see that this didn't happen because Israel never kept their terms. So this covenant had terms. Number five, <clears throat> God will be merciful and gracious and forgiving. We see that in Exodus 34, 67. You know, the foundation to all of this, the most beautiful part about all of this is God is merciful, He's gracious, and He'll be forgiving to these people. God is not saying if you take one little step wrong, if, if you just miss the mark, if you, if you just don't, God is slow to anger. So he's not just saying to them, listen, if you, if you just, just accidentally uh, uh, mess up in this, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disown you. No, <clears throat> he's saying to them, you know, I'm going to be merciful to you. <clears throat> I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to be forgiving to you. And this is so beautiful because this is before the cross and God was already merciful and already wanting to be gracious and already wanting to be for, forgiving to these people. But obviously we see them rather turning away and turning to other gods. Um, you know, this is an incredible promise that God has given them. What are the provisors? What, what is expected of the people? So I've been, I've been echoing this whole, whole evening, but I want to just point to that again. So if you look at Deuteronomy 28, you see they had to remain obedient to God's laws and that would result in blessing. So what is expected from the people? They just have to be obedient, just have to do what God says. If, you know, eventually the Ten Commandments starts off as ten, but it becomes, you know, God is not, he's actually giving them a way of life. He's saying to them, listen, this is your security. Sometimes when we think about the laws and commandments, many people tend to think about it as in God is trying to see how boring he can make your life. That's not the point of the commandments. The commandments, these laws were to protect the people. For example, let, let me share something with you that's completely, uh, that's just, that just shows you God's heart. God says, if you have a house and your house has rot in it, God says you have to burn the entire house. Why does he say that to them? Because he knows that rot's going to spread and it's going to go to the neighbor's house and it's going to begin to affect everyone else. So what does God say? This is what you do. Rather destroy your house so that everyone else's house doesn't have to be destroyed in the end. So those kind of laws were in place. You know, it's like, it's just God is trying to tell them, I want you to live in this. I want you to live spaciously within my limitations. I want you to live in freedom. But there's these limitations. The limitations are there to keep you safe. And that's what God's put these laws in place for. I, I don't want you to murder. I don't want you to, 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 to sleep with, with, with your neighbor's wife. So what is he saying? He's beginning to protect them. He's putting these laws in place to help them, to guide them and to direct them. So what is expected of the people is just to remain obedient to these laws. What are the penalties of this covenant? If you are disobedient, then disaster, occupation, exile, all these things are going to come upon you. So what is the period for the, for the, for the covenant? The period of the covenant, is, it's, it's not a permanent covenant. It was a temporary covenant. The covenant, this covenant would go until the Messiah came. How do we know that? 
The Bible says in Galatians 3 from verse 23 to 25, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. So the law operated as a custodian locked up until the faith was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian, a custodian, a guardian. That's what it acted as until Christ came or until Messiah came. That's what Christ is Greek for, for Messiah. And then obviously Messiah, the Hebrew came that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we no longer need the guardian. We no longer need the custodian. So Galatians 3 tells us that that covenant was in place to bring them to the point of Messiah. It was a, like a hand-holding covenant to bring you to the place till you old enough or ready enough to now be under a different covenant or a different dispensation. So we see that happening. <clears throat> what was the purpose of this covenant? The purpose of the covenant was uh, for them to be a demonstration of divine righteousness and to show everyone the need for forgiveness. Obviously, we see Moses gives them the, 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 the laws, the commandments, and he also gets the instructions on Mount Sinai to build the tabernacle. God is saying, I want to be personal to my people. I want to dwell with my people. I want to, you know, this sort of becomes a shadow for what we have under the new. So we see that God is saying, I want to, I want to be with them. I want them to uh, uh, have my presence in their midst. So really, these people would then be the ones that then would, through that tabernacle process, there would be priests, there would be obviously Aaron, um, the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, there would be sacrifices, there would be all these things that God then puts in place to prepare them for the new, where Jesus or Messiah or the Christ would be the sacrifice, where the Christ would be the one that we could put our faith in. And now we have the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go to a tabernacle. We become the tabernacle and God's presence is no longer a place we go to visit for pilgrimage. His presence now begins to rest and abide in us. His Holy Spirit indwells us and we become the temple, the tabernacle. And now we carry God's presence. So wherever we go, people no longer have to go to Jerusalem to go and experience God. All they have to do is meet you. When people see you, when they, when they talk to you, when they, when they engage with you, they're engaging, they're engaging with the one who carries the presence of God. They're engaging with the one who has God's spirit dwelling in them. They're engaging with the one who has the mind of Christ. And that's incredible. So this covenant really then gets established and, uh, you know, God then gives them all these terms and conditions. So this covenant is definitely a temporary covenant. And this covenant is definitely one where there's conditions attached. It's not just uh, unconditional like the uh, Noahic covenant. Um, there's conditions and they needed to do that. Um, and they needed to make sure they lived God's way. And I want you to really get the understanding that God is not trying to box things in um, to say that, listen, uh, I want you to have the worst life you can. It's actually to say, I'm giving you these laws and commands to say, this is how you'll flourish. If you live my way, you will live well with your neighbor. And really, Jesus then eventually comes, we'll see soon, um, where Jesus says to us, if you want to fulfill the laws and the prophets, all you have to do is love. So Jesus fulfills everything in that 613 instructions that God gives to these people, gets fulfilled in Christ's instruction to love God and to love others as you love yourself. So to me, that's incredible. Um, and to me, that really just paints the picture of the heart of the Father as he establishes this covenant with these people.